breaking news tonight from El Paso, Texas. At least 20 people have been killed after a shooting rampage at a shopping complex. 32-year-old Heather Heyer died when a car drove into counter-protesters. The Gilroy police have confirmed that this is an active shooting situation. Family, friends, and strangers continue to leave flowers for the victims of Saturday's Tree of Life synagogue shooting. The city of Orlando is starting to say goodbye to the 49 victims lost in the Pulse nightclub shooting. This busy Texas shopping center becoming the latest mass shooting. We are treating it as a domestic terrorism case, and we're going to do do what we do to terrorists in this country, which is deliver swift and certain justice. Welcome back to Talking Feds, where prominent former federal officials gather for a dynamic roundtable discussion of the most important legal topics of the day. I'm Frank Figluzzi, former FBI assistant director and an NBC News national security contributor. It's my honor to guest host for Harry Littman, who'll be back in this chair next week. Today, we're talking about violent extremist ideology and how the law copes or doesn't with crimes inspired by ideology. The horrors of recent mass shootings in Gilroy, El Paso, and Dayton have many of us questioning whether existing legislation adequately equips law enforcement to prevent such acts and to sufficiently address violent actors when they are motivated by what they believe. Fortunately, we're joined by three former feds who have all had extensive experience in this field. First, Barbara McQuaid has graciously joined us Barb is the former U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan, who co-chaired the Attorney General's Terrorism and National Security Subcommittee. She was also an assistant U.S. attorney in Detroit for 12 years and is currently a professor from practice at the University of Michigan Law School. Hi, Barb. Hi, Frank. Thanks a lot for having me. Of course. It's also my pleasure to welcome Mary McCord. Mary is a visiting professor of law at Georgetown University Law Center. She's also the former acting assistant attorney general for national security and a federal prosecutor for 20 years in the District of Columbia. Thanks for being here, Mary. It's my pleasure, Frank. Thank you. And finally, we're fortunate to welcome Malcolm Nance to Talking Feds. Malcolm is a counterterrorism and intelligence consultant for the U.S. government's special operations, homeland security, and intelligence agencies with extensive field and combat intelligence activity. He's also an author of several books, most recently, The Plot to End Democracy. Malcolm, welcome to Talking Feds. Great to be here. All right, we've got a lot of ground to cover, so let's dive right in to first a high-level discussion in our first segment before we then dig into possible solutions and proposals. So since we're focused today on violent extremist ideology, it's going to be important that we first spend some time understanding those terms, because if we're just talking about violence, that would be a different show, and there are plenty of laws to address violence. And if we were focused only on extremism, that would imply wrongly that we think that ideas in and of themselves should be subject to legal constraints. To be clear, what we're talking about are ideologies that contain the often lethal combination of extremism plus violence. 
the kind of ideology that incites people to commit the kind of mass murder we saw in El Paso or in the bombing of the federal building in Oklahoma City or in the mass attacks of violent Islamic jihadists on September 11th. The Oxford Dictionary says an extremist is a person who holds extreme political or religious views, especially one who advocates illegal, violent, or other extreme action. And a UK government initiative that I'm a fan of called Educate Against Hate says, extremism is the vocal or active opposition to our fundamental values, including democracy, the rule of law, and respect and tolerance for different faiths and beliefs. And we all know violence, of course, is behavior involving physical force intended to hurt, damage, or kill someone or something. And since we're defining terms, this might be a good time to insert what we call our sidebar segment to help us understand what we mean when we use the terms domestic and international terrorism. Today, for our sidebar, we're very pleased to have with us the Emmy Award-winning film and television actor, Bradley Whitford. I'm a big fan of Whitford's because the work he does transcends entertainment and includes zeitgeist-defining shows, like his portrayal of Deputy Chief of Staff Josh Lyman on NBC's The West Wing, or his Emmy-winning guest spot on Transparent, and, of course, his recent role as Commander Lawrence on a dystopian drama, The Handmaid's Tale. Today, Brad explains the difference in the U.S. law between domestic and international terrorism. What is the difference between domestic and foreign terrorism under federal law? Many people are calling for white supremacist mass murder to be prosecuted as domestic terrorism. The U.S. Attorney for the Western District of Texas, who will prosecute the El Paso shooter, said they are treating the shooting as a domestic terrorism case. But what is domestic terrorism, and how does it differ from international terrorism? Federal law defines both domestic and international terrorism as any violent criminal act intended to intimidate or coerce a civilian population, influence government policy, or affect the conduct of government by mass destruction, assassination, or kidnapping. International terrorism occurs primarily outside of the United States or has an international scope, target, or means. Domestic terrorism, on the other hand, occurs primarily within the United States. The FBI Counterterrorism Division separately tracks domestic and international terrorism. Globally, it has about 5,000 open terrorism investigations. 850 are domestic terrorism cases, about 40% of which involve racial extremists, primarily white supremacists. The FBI has actually arrested more suspects in domestic terrorism cases than international terrorism over the last several years. Given all this, you might be surprised to learn that domestic terrorism is not a crime under federal law. There is a federal crime of acts of terrorism transcending national boundaries that carries punishments up to the death penalty. But there is no similar law for acts of terrorism within the country's borders. Domestic terrorism cases are prosecuted under other federal and state statutes. For example, 
Timothy McVeigh was tried and sentenced to death for the Oklahoma City bombing under federal laws prohibiting the use of weapons of mass destruction. Dylan Roof and Robert Bowers were prosecuted under federal hate crime and state murder laws for the attacks on the Charleston Emanuel AME Church and the Pittsburgh Tree of Life Synagogue. In the wake of the El Paso shootings, DOJ veterans have called for new legal measures that will help address domestic terrorism. They include Brian O'Hare, the president of the FBI Agents Association, Harry Littman, former U.S. attorney, and Frank Figluzzi, former assistant FBI director for counterintelligence. Thanks very much to Bradley Whitford. All right, let's move from our definitions to our discussion. Mary, there, there seems to be a subjective nature to the concept of extremism. It seems to be in the eye of the beholder. And not all violent extremist ideology leads to actual violence. So are we even justified in trying to take a legal approach to extremist ideologies as motivators to violence? Our law has already taken that legal approach to extremist violence. It's done it through the terrorism statutes that are on the books, which in addition to criminalizing acts of violence, criminalize especially acts of violence when motivated by a particular extremist ideology. And by that, I don't mean a particular viewpoint. I mean an intent, like we just heard in the sidebar, to intimidate or coerce a civilian population, to influence governmental policy through intimidation or coercion. So regardless of the ideology, whether it's Islamist extremism, as it was, for example, with respect to 9-11 and many of the terrorist crimes that we've seen prior prosecuted since 9-11, or whether it's far right-wing extremism, like some of the white supremacist-motivated crimes we've seen recently here in the United States, or whether it's any other ideologically driven extremism. When it crosses over into espousing certain viewpoints and ideologies into a radicalization toward violence, where actual violence is solicited, incited, that is when we leave sort of First Amendment protected speech. And we really are talking about violence, which is not protected, the Supreme Court has told us time and time again. So I think it's important to pull away from viewpoint and the subjective nature of ideology and focus on what is the intent. If the intent is intimidation or coercion, it's bigger than just a one-on-one crime. It's bigger than just a local issue or a state issue or a national issue. It becomes an international issue and a matter of national security for the U.S. And so we'll talk a little bit later about when that line gets crossed and, and when we discern that someone is moving down that path of violence as opposed to maybe just being aspirational. One of the things um, that was an outcome of El Paso um, is that many of us are surprised to learn that domestic terrorism, while defined in the American law, isn't distinctly addressed as its own crime. I've talked to a lot of people who were shocked to hear that. Barbara, you're a longtime prosecutor. How does it work right now without having a specific domestic terrorism crime? How does it work if you're a prosecutor or FBI agent trying to get things done? 
it creates problems at two levels. One, I think, in terms of the actual work and another in terms of the public perception of the work. And so in terms of the actual work, it does leave gaps in the law when investigators and prosecutors find groups that are concerning about planning acts of violence, but they don't find a statute a federal statute that may be violated. And until uh, there's an identified statute that can be violated, investigators and prosecutors can't open up a grand jury investigation. Of course, investigations cannot be based solely on First Amendment protected activity. But if there's not a crime on the books, you can't really even investigate them. And that causes challenges. I'll tell you just one quick story. When I was U.S. attorney, we had a case involving a militia group in rural Michigan that was plotting to kill police officers. And we certainly wanted to investigate the group and we wanted to be able to arrest the group before they committed a crime. Frank, you're probably familiar with the term left of boom, where boom signifies the attack. And if you imagine it on a timeline, left of boom is sometime before that attack. And the FBI and the U.S. Attorney's offices always want to intercept violent groups left of boom before an attack occurs. But in that case, it was solely a domestic group. They were anti-federal government. And we really had a hard time finding a federal statute on the books. We ultimately did find vicious conspiracy, which makes it a crime to levy war against the United States or oppose its authority by force. But it was a clumsy statute. It had an Orwellian name. We ultimately did charge the group under that statute, and the judge dismissed the case before it went to the jury. And so there are definitely gaps in the law when you're trying to investigate purely domestic groups. And then that's the actual problem. And then in terms of the perception problem, uh, you, you run into this problem where you refer to groups with an international nexus uh, with ties to, say, al-Qaeda or ISIS as terrorists, and then you refer to purely domestic violent groups as active shooters or based on their acts, and you don't call them terrorists. And that causes problems, too, in terms of uh, the moral equivalent of their conduct, because uh, by any measure, what they're doing is domestic terrorism. And I have to say, I have to applaud the current administration, which is referring to acts like El Paso and like Charlottesville as terrorism. When I was at the U.S. Attorney's Office, I think the administration was always very reluctant to use the word terrorism because there was no actual statute. And But colloquially, I think people think of it as terrorism. And I think to call it terrorism, even if the ultimate charge might be technically something different, I think is an effort to draw that moral equivalence. Yeah, I, I agree. I, uh, I was pleased, uh, as anyone can be, after a tragedy to hear the U.S. attorney in Texas after El Paso saying right away, um, look, this, this is going to be looked at as domestic terrorism. And I think it's important to say that from your example, I share frustration of, regarding cases I, I had to supervise where we were left with a big dilemma of whether to do what we call knock and talk to disrupt something we knew was going about to happen or was being talked about particularly with militia groups, because you, you do that knock and talk just to let them know we're on to you. And then uh, they get empowered when you can't arrest them. And they feel like they're being harassed and abused. And it makes its way around the internet that, you know, we, we blew off the FBI. And you've got you to make some decisions about when the violence uh, might be happening or whether it's time to knock and, and, and disrupt. Malcolm, that's a good segue for you in terms of someone who's been a practitioner in the field um, and this whole idea of how to investigate violent ideology. The FBI director, Chris Ray, has said on the Hill that the FBI doesn't investigate ideology. They investigate 
violence. And uh, as we've been talking about, the question is, isn't it too late if the FBI is waiting for violence to occur? So in your background experience, what have you seen regarding successful interventions on the international terrorism side that maybe could be implemented on the domestic side? And this raises the whole question of the El Paso shooter, if we switched his motivation to Islamic Jihad, would there have been a different outcome? Would the FBI have been empowered to be in chat rooms and sites where they might have seen this planning take place? I'm almost certain that had it been a jihadist, that the FBI would certainly be investigating ideology. And since 9-11, one of the, the, the core components of the national intelligence apparatus has not just been to collect against the target and collect against the organizational structures, but certainly after 2005, uh, between 2005 and 2010, there was a huge effort to go after the ideology and understand that the ideology was the driver of all of the acts. In fact, I wrote a book called An End to Al-Qaeda, which was a very deep dive study of Al-Qaeda's ideology and how that pushed the street-level person into what we now commonly call radicalization, and that that radicalization would lead them onto joining an organization or becoming a self-starting terrorist, which is what we saw al-Qaeda morph from, from the, you know, the core uh, clandestine service type organization, paramilitary, to a disparate group of people who have weapon systems and just go out and do a, a, an act or a deed which gets them sort of membership into the group and uh, allows them to be hagiographed after their death. Ideology, despite what Director Ray says, is always going to be a core driver. I know, you know, coming from the international perspective, I got to use against international terrorist groups national systems and intelligence collection methodologies you just couldn't possibly imagine being used against an American citizen because of those misnomer, uh, as, as Barb said earlier, where people would say, oh, that's an active shooter or that's a militia man. And because they don't fall under the acts or clearly defined under the statutes as terrorists, there are intelligence resources that just cannot be used. You know, or if they're used, they're used exclusively by the FBI and the FBI itself doesn't have access to a lot of the analytical tools and resources that the National Counterterrorism Center or other intelligence agencies and apparatus would have because they are American citizens. And so once we can corral American citizens in their behaviors into the, the statutes as you know equal to being international terrorism, then we'll have a, a lot more methodologies to collect against these these individuals, not just you know wiretaps or you know the the knock walk, knock and talks, which you know I'm a big fan of. I think those disrupt uh, American citizens who are essentially talking off at you know shooting off at the mouth. But you know we don't apply that same standard to an American citizen that's joining Al Qaeda or ISIS. <laughs> we we you know I know the FBI does their knock and talks. But because of the statutes, there are resources that are used in the United States, offshore, strategic assets uh, the intelligence community have that the FBI has access to that 
we can't use against the militia group that may be planning the next Oklahoma City bombing. So Malcolm raises a great question here, and I think a lot of our listeners might be scratching their head at this point saying, well, so what, what's behind this differentiation? What, what's, what's the deal in our society where we seem to be very comfortable talking about another religion as extremist and violent, but when it comes to our own folks, it seems we've, we've got this huge gap. Mary, Barb, can you weigh in here and just give us a brief history of how, how we got here, how we got to this gap? Right. So a lot of this uh, and a lot of the discrepancy has been driven, of course, by First Amendment concerns within the U.S. So, for example, a lot of the regime that, that Malcolm was talking about is has developed around our material support statutes, which there are two of them, and most people are familiar with just one, and that is material support to a foreign terrorist organization. So this is a tool that has been used more than half of the terrorism-related prosecutions since 9-11 are brought under this statute, material support to a foreign terrorist organization. And what it requires is it requires a designation by the Department of State of an organization operating abroad. It must be foreign as a terrorist organization. So the criteria are it must be foreign, it must engage in terrorist acts or have the capability or intent to engage in terrorist acts, and it must present a threat to U.S. nationals or to U.S. national security. So organizations such as al-Qaeda, ISIS, Boko Haram, others, almost entirely Islamist extremist organizations. There are 68 organizations on the list. There are a few uh, involving like the FARC in Colombia and some a few others that are not Islamist extremist organizations, but the vast majority are. Because foreign organizations don't have First Amendment rights, we're able to designate under U.S. law those foreign organizations as terrorist organizations. And therefore, even a U.S. person in the United States, an American citizen in the United States, if they are providing material support or resources to that foreign terrorist organization, that could be money, that could be equipment, that could be carrying out an attack on behalf of the foreign terrorist organization, even here in the U.S. So think of things like the Pulse nightclub shooter in Orlando or the San Bernardino shooters who pledged by it before they went on their shooting sprees. Those things would all be material support to terrorism, and they can be investigated beforehand to try to be preventive. Now, of course, Pulse Nightclub and San Bernardino, those weren't prevented, but there are plenty of others that have been based on investigations into whether an individual in the U.S. is providing material support to a foreign terrorist organization. We don't designate domestic organizations as terrorist organizations, largely for First Amendment concerns, because a lot of the speech that an organization might be involved in, whether it's the KKK, whether it's Vanguard, America, Identity Europa, Patriot Prayer, some of the very far right-wing ethno-nationalists and white supremacist organizations engage in a lot of speech in addition to some of their members occasionally engaging in violence. But it would be very difficult to sort of differentiate 
within an organization between the protected parts of their expression, freedom of expression, freedom to assemble with others with the same viewpoint, and the unprotected parts, which are the advocating of violence. And so I think that's one of the sort of historical reasons that we've seen the discrepancy. But that doesn't mean that we can't address more directly the violence, as we were discussing at the beginning of this program, because when that ideology turns to extremism and turns to the actual incitement, solicitation, or engaging in violence, that's not protected anymore. That's helpful. Barb, so does this mean, let's let's do a hypothetical here. If I'm in support of ISIS, an international terrorist group, and I decide I'm going to rob some banks in the United States to help fund ISIS, and that I'm going to be charged with material support to terrorism. But if I'm part of a neo American neo-Nazi group and I'm going to rob those same banks to support a bombing of a Jewish synagogue because of my neo-Nazi ideology, that I'm going to be handled differently by the law and and perhaps not even as stringently. Is that is that fair to say that we we're going to look at those two scenarios differently? Yeah, I think you have to uh, unpack a few things there. Number one, of course, robbing a bank is illegal, so you could charge either of those individuals with bank robbery. And so sometimes that's what happens in these types of cases. You you all are familiar with the phrase, the Al Capone theory of prosecution, uh, which refers to Al Capone's prosecution for income tax evasion because it was too difficult to prove that he was involved in gangland-style murders. And so sometimes you can just charge them both with, with bank robbery. But if the purpose is to support a terrorist organization, one foreign and one domestic, just supporting the group, there would be a distinction. Now, there is a material support statute that covers domestic terrorism, 18 United States Code, section 2339A. And if you know or intend your contribution to support an act of violence, a particular crime, then that can be charged. What's missing from the list of crimes, though, is a crime of domestic terrorism. So again, there's a little bit of a gap there in the law. But Frank, to most directly answer your question, if you simply want to make a contribution to the group to further its work by providing proceeds, one to the foreign terrorist group that's on the designated list and another to a domestic violent extremist group, then there is a difference there in how those would be treated. Okay. So we've spent considerable time defining our terms, understanding there's there's a gap here, certainly between how we deal with international and domestic terrorism. There's concern about free speech, uh, when hate speech becomes violent speech and moves to violence. So this might be a good time to launch into our second segment and get into some specific proposals, options that might help us close the gap or treat these things more similarly, and even more importantly, allow law enforcement to get in and legally prevent violence from happening. Hearing will come to order. Uh, Welcome, uh, Director Ray. Appreciate you coming over. It's been nearly two years since you were confirmed to run the FBI. And so we have a lot of important topics to cover. We, the FBI, don't investigate ideology no matter how repugnant. We investigate violence. In terms of number of arrests, we have, through the third quarter of this fiscal year, had about 
give or take 100 arrests in the international terrorism side, which includes the homegrown violent extremism. This year. This year. But we've also had just about the same number uh, on the domestic terrorism side. And I will say that a uh, majority of the um, domestic terrorism cases that we've investigated are motivated by some version of what you might call white supremacist violence, but it includes other things as well. So, what are some proposed solutions to deal with what our law enforcement and intel agencies tell us may be the number one threat we're now facing? So we've heard the FBI tell us this is not only growing, but is likely the, the priority threat we're looking at. We've identified gaps. How do we deal with them? Mary, is it time for a domestic terrorism law? What would such a law look like? How do we ensure we don't get into abuses that some claimed after 9-11? What are you looking at in terms of language and a proposal? So I think one thing to start out uh, to be clear with is, is the, the gap is very specific. The gap is really that there is no terrorism statute that applies to crimes of violence committed in the U.S., with the intent to intimidate or coerce if they're done with a firearm or with a vehicle um, and if the intended target is not a U.S. government official. Because many people say to me, there are crimes that apply. There are crimes of terrorism that apply to domestic terrorism. And that's true, but they operate in very limited circumstances. They operate when you're using or, or attempting to use a weapon of mass destruction, like a bomb. They operate when you're using a radiological or biological dispersal device. They operate when you're shooting down an airplane or attacking mass trains transit or when you're attacking a government official or government property. Well, we all know those are not actually the most common methods of committing terrorist violence in the U.S. The most common method is through mass shootings using firearms and less common, but increasingly so are using vehicles like we saw in Charlottesville and we've seen elsewhere, a common tool of international terrorists as well over uh, Western Europe and Southeast Asia. So, that's where we have a gap. And that and I say that because I've, you know, had people say to me, there are statutes and they're right, but they don't apply to almost every kind of terrorist crime that we see here, including what we just saw in El Paso. Well, and I, I let me let me you you've raised something really important on this whole concept of weapon of mass destruction, because driving a, a car into a crowd might kill eight or 10 people. But on a given weekend in El Paso or Dayton, where you have 100 round magazines, you, you could theoretically kill hundreds of people with a fully automatic or semi-automatic weapon. So you're, you're telling our listeners that the law does not look at uh, automatic weapons as weapons of mass destruction. That's correct. And you're absolutely right. With the type of magazines and semi-automatic uh, weapons that are available, firearms that are available, they, they can cause as much destruction as a lot of bombs. But the way weapons of mass destruction are defined in the statute is an incendiary device. It would not apply to a firearm. Right. And, and so that is, that is one of the gaps that we're seeking to, to close here, those of us who are advocating for a domestic terrorism statute. But in order to avoid some of the first Amendment problems that we've been talking about, I at least am not advocating for designating domestic organizations. What I have advocated for and what we've seen in some of the bills that have been introduced is simply making existing crimes of violence, killing, kidnapping, assault with a dangerous weapon, assault with significant bodily injury, and attempts to uh, destroy property where there's a substantial risk of 
serious bodily injury. These violent crimes that already are crimes in every state, when done with the intent to intimidate or coerce or to influence governmental policy through intimidation or coercion, regardless of the ideology behind them, that is what these new bills and what I've advocated would become this new crime of, it really, I say terrorism within the territorial U.S. as opposed to domestic terrorism, because for all kinds of legal reasons, that's sort of technically what it would apply to, and it would still apply even if it was an Islamist extremism motivated or ISIS motivated crime. Because if it's if it's a crime of violence in the U.S. to intimidate or coerce, it would qualify. Can I just chime in on that also? Yeah, Barb, Barb about please. Why I think it's necessary? Yeah, um, you know, Mary said that it would go after active shooters and people who drive a car into a crowd. Sometimes I hear critics say, well, we already have state laws that make those crimes. It would be murder. And so problem solved, right? But again, it goes back to this idea of left of boom, of wanting to prevent attacks before they occur. And Frank, as you know, the whole mission of the FBI post 9-11 is to detect, disrupt, and dismantle threats before human life can be lost. And so state law enforcement agencies in most parts of America lack the kinds of resources to do long-term investigations the way the FBI can. They lack the national scope that the FBI has. They lack some of the tools that the FBI has, such as search warrants in cases of domestic terrorism um, across the country. And so enabling the FBI to investigate crimes of domestic terrorism before they occur, I think, is the key to the statute that Mary has described. And fully integrating the investigation of domestic terrorism into the national counterterrorism program. And I think Malcolm probably could speak to that as well, because that's what we're lacking now. The national counterterrorism program is a program about prevention. Um, and that's why tools like undercover online personas and sting operations are used in order to prevent. And uh, we haven't seen that full integration. So the law that, that you're proposing would include conspiracy. It would be a crime to, to simply plan these things. We would not have to wait for the carnage. We could actually get in investigatively uh, when we see the planning phase. Yeah, it would provide that sort of predicate for the FBI to open an investigation and use certain investigatory tools, l- things like using undercover officers or undercover employees to go online and have engagement with others who may be planning acts of violence. Now, you can't conspire with an undercover officer under law, but the officers could run sting operations. Now, I know that there are a lot of people in this country that think that our law enforcement has already been too aggressive when it comes to preventing terrorism and and don't really like sting operations. But these are tools that have been used historically across all kinds of different crimes. Think, for example, child sexual exploitation. The way that our um, law enforcement prevents child sexual exploitation is undercover officers. They go online posing to be pedophiles. They get into chat rooms with other pedophiles, and they run a sting operation so that when somebody thinks they're going to have sex with a seven-year-old, it's actually a sting operation, and we prevent actual sex with a seven-year-old. It's the same type of techniques used in the terrorism prevention area. So, Malcolm, you, you've studied terrorism. You've not only studied it, you've, you've worked directly against international terrorists. In terms of looking at this idea of having the law catch up and, and treat things similarly to international terrorism— what, what are the commonalities you're seeing? Are we, are we on the right track? Are we seeing in, in things like El Paso, white supremacy, 
um, neo-Nazi groups, the radicalization process? Are we seeing things that that cause a bell to go off in your head and go, look, that's that's not a whole lot different than the uh, international side? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there, let me tell you a quick little story. When um, Anders Bering Breivik, the Norwegian uh, terrorist who went to and you know set off a car bomb in the center of Oslo, trying to dis, you know attack the central government, then went to an island where he shot 68 children and uh, an adult campers dead in an effort to essentially wipe out a political arm of his government. I was called that same day by a former student of mine uh, who was in Norwegian intelligence. And they sent me a translation of his manifesto as they were translating it into English. And all of the principal players in his manifesto, which, by the way, is now the same manifesto format that all of these white supremacist shooters around the world are using, it was rife with American citizens who were extolling for you know this international cabal of right-wing extremists to carry out attacks against Muslims around the world to create this sort of crusader vanguard and the first question they asked was am i dealing with an international terrorism problem that emanates from the united states so you know for me i i couldn't say yes i mean you know people here in the united states have protected speech uh, and all of the speech that they said was mainly public. And this terrorist took that speech, turned it into an ideology, which today is now found in virtually all of our major active shooter situations, right down to the format of the manifesto. So I think that, uh, that Mary's idea of taking what we already have, these international statutes, allowing for the protection of speech, but also giving the FBI and law enforcement agencies the ability to intervene left of boom. You know, and I love the title, you know, terrorism against the United States or terrorism in the United States, because it gives a great psychological boom to law enforcement and government before you even get the statute written. I train a lot of state homeland security agencies in, in homeland security intelligence, and they all think they're going to be seeing ISIS. They all think they're going to be having gun battles against al-Qaeda. And I tell them, no, it's the posse comitatus guy. It's the Timothy McVeigh. They'll go to guns in a minute, right? They will come right out and have a duel with you right on the street. And it happens so much that no one notices it. But they don't get the, the title of terrorist. And I think that even as legislation is moving forward and we fill these gaps, I think the psychological operation of the FBI, the state homeland security agencies, even local law enforcement now coming out and saying, this is a terrorist act. This person will not be referred to as a shooter. He will be referred to as a terrorist can psychologically impact almost to a certain extent, like a national, you know, knock and talk, where they will not want to be associated with that term because they're ideological enemies, right? The immigrants, the Muslims, those people to them are terrorists. And they see themselves, as the old phrase go, right? They see themselves as freedom fighters because one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. But as we're trying to work our way towards 
a solution which allows the you know national resources to be brought down to the FBI and other agencies, just the discussion of it could have a psychological impact of, on an enormous scale with a lot of these guys who are, you know, you say you're ex-state militia man, and the discussion nationally becomes about you may be designated as terrorist, you know, once your protected speech goes into, you know, planning and buying ammunition for action. Before we even have legislation, you may actually be breaking up, you know, some of that discussion, which may lead to terrorist plots. So there is a force multiplier here just in the national discussion of who is a terrorist, what is a terrorist, and the entire concept of bringing up legislation. One quick aside, this has actually happened before. Uh, when I was still in the military, I was a lecturer for the International Association of Bomb Techs and Investigators on terrorism. And in fact, there was a lot of discussion around the year 2000 of tagging ammonium nitrate in the United States. No laws had been passed, but the discussion after Oklahoma City was so widespread that we caught a terrorist coming from Canada through the port in Washington state in a car on a ferry carrying his own ammonium nitrate because he thought we were tagging in the United States. We weren't. So this entire discussion, particularly against American citizens who you know, think that they're patriots and people who are going to refresh the, the tree of liberty with blood, the, just the discussion and designation that they could be equal to al-Qaeda and ISIS could practically short-circuit a lot of these activities that we're talking about. This is a powerful point. It really is. Uh, this is not just about law enforcement uh, tools and investigative tools. This is about counter-radicalization. And I think you're right. If these groups and individuals see themselves now as being labeled as enemies of the United States and, and put kind of on a moral equivalency with ISIS and al-Qaeda, it could change the dynamic, could change the discussion, could certainly uh, increase the FBI's ability to recruit informants who uh, who have a, you know, who have a, a kind of uh, a revelation that uh, what they're doing is inimical to the United States. Great uh Great point. So I can already hear, and we heard it almost immediately after El Paso. I can I can hear certain segments saying, "Look, don't let's not move to a knee jerk response." There were there were some acts in the Patriot Act, some elements of Patriot Act in response to nine eleven that were exploitative or abusive. So this is a question for the whole group. How do we ensure if we move forward with legislation that we aren't building in some abuses or uh, or civil civil liberties issues? I think that the bills that Senator McSally and Representative Adam Schiff have proposed include some oversight provisions in them. They require reporting requirements to Congress and to the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board to ensure how they're being used. There is the protection already there, Frank, as you know, in so many of our terrorism laws and in the uh, what's known as the DIOG, Domestic Investigations Operations Guide that the FBI uses, that investigations may not be predicated solely on First Amendment protected activity. And I think that's very important that uh, we're not becoming the thought police. It is not the group that's that's favored, uh, is investigating and prosecuting a group that is disfavored. It is a focus on conduct and not on association. 
and I think even if we were to pass such laws, they would ultimately be found unconstitutional. One of the leading cases on the material support statute for foreign terrorist organizations, where there was a challenge for providing to some designated groups uh, legal advice and training on how to be an advocate to change laws that was upheld with regard to foreign terrorist organizations. But in that opinion, Justice Roberts wrote that he believed such a law would not pass constitutional muster if it was uh, focusing on solely domestic groups. So I think we have to be mindful of protecting our First Amendment speech and assembly rights. But I think by focusing on conduct as opposed to association, uh, we can do that if we're careful. Mary, your thoughts? Sure. I mean, I, you know, I've been talking about this for a couple of years and I've met with a number of civil rights and civil liberties groups to hear out their concerns. And, you know, they are very concerned that, and this is based on sort of, you know, a longstanding mistrust of law enforcement and in particular the FBI dating back to various abuses of several decades ago. They're very worried that any additional sort of statutory tool that we provide will be misused by law enforcement and targeting the wrong individuals, the, the, the individuals who are not actually a threat. And that's why you're seeing these oversight provisions in the draft statutes. Um, the Privacy and Civil Liberties Board was created you know, after 9-11 to review a lot of the surveillance programs that uh, came into public light. And it's a bipartisan committee reports to the president and, and, and has issued reports that really brought a lot of transparency into what our government has done as a means of surveillance. And so this would be a different mission for them. But I think the idea of having, we call it the P-CLOB, Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board to sort of review how a new terrorism statute is being implemented over the course of the first several years could be very helpful. Reporting to Congress, I think, would be helpful too. And, and Barb mentioned this, but be very specific about this. Have the FBI report on a year-to-year -year basis how many investigations are being opened up under the authority of the statute, how many are resulting in actual prosecutions, what are the charges, what is the result? And more importantly, what are the categories? I don't expect, believe me, I come from a, a career in law enforcement and really kind of hated Congress getting up in our business all the time. So I don't expect them to require the FBI to report on every single investigation, you know, with every detail, but categories of investigation. Is it white racially motivated violence? Is it animal rights extremism? Is it Islamic extremism? Is it anarchist extremism. And by reporting in categories, uh, the FBI would be required to essentially, you know, show its hand in terms of where is it prioritizing its resources. And right now, FBI Director Ray and Assistant Director Mike McGarrity have both said that, you know, the white supremacist threat is the greater threat. That's where they're seeing most of their domestic terrorism investigations are, are mostly white supremacist investigations. And most of the deaths from terrorism in the U.S. in recent years have come from domestic extremist causes, which overwhelmingly are white supremacist or white nationalist extremist causes. So if the reporting were to show that the FBI were putting its resources to an area of extremism that is not where the real threat exists, then I think that would be very obvious, not just to Congress, but to the American people and pretty effective oversight. 
Yeah, this this sounds doable. And I, I Barb's mention of the Diog, the domestic guidelines for the FBI, almost made me cringe with flashbacks because there there is extensive, and I think the public doesn't know this or fully appreciate it because it's it is sensitive. But there is tremendous oversight already um, and requirements of when you can open a preliminary inquiry, when you can open an informant, when you move to a full investigation and extension requests being documented, progress being uh, required, and supervision at all layers uh, in the field and headquarters. So I do think it's doable, and I think reporting is an important part of that. So today, most of our discussion has focused, and in fact, the national discussion after El Paso has focused on the law enforcement solution, the government solution, criminal law proposals. Let's just close out our discussion by touching on something else and asking ourselves, is there another way to look at this, an additional way to look at it that involves the private sector? And I'm talking about, for example, what we saw after the the horrible tragedy at Sandy Hook and and the Newtown, Connecticut school shooting, where parents sued a gun manufacturer. Is there a way to make it painful on the domestic side and the private sector for people to host websites or or chat rooms, what what's the private sector uh, role in all of this? Well, I'll, I'll take a stab at that first. I think there's a couple of things going on there. You know, civil liability because of the Communications Decency Act is very circumscribed when it comes to holding internet service providers accountable, and we're talking about like social media platforms accountable for violence that might be incited or encouraged using their platforms. And that's an area of controversy. And a lot of people are talking about whether that's civil liability protection. Right now, they're basically insulated from uh, civil liability lawsuits, such as you mentioned. They're not insulated from criminal liability. So that means if a social media platform or an internet service provider knows uh, and has the information to know that it's service is being used to incite violence, is being used to actually do something that's not protected speech. And put aside for a minute that a private company is not bound by the First Amendment anyway. They can take down any content they want. But the question is, could they ever be criminally liable? And I think the question is, yes, if they if they know that their platform is being used to incite violence and they're leaving it up they, and they have an intent for it to stay up and be available, there's always potential criminal liability. But I think, you know, those are bulky. Those are, those are not the the first line tools that should be used. When I was the uh, principal deputy assistant attorney general for national security, I had meetings with a lot of different social media platforms to help educate them about just how misused their platforms, how much ISIS and Al Qaeda had misused their platforms to encourage and incite violence. And it took it took a couple of years, but they got much more proactive in taking down that content. And I think they've lagged behind when it comes to the domestic terrorist threat, the white supremacist threat, the white supremacist misuse of their platforms. I think they're starting to have an awakening there. We're starting to see more activity there, certainly in the last six months to a year. And so I think more of those discussions, you know, frank discussions between not only government and the private sector, social media about the threat and how their platforms are being used, but pressure, frankly, also from the users of these platforms. You know, the the American public and the international public who who has you know Twitter accounts and Facebook 
Facebook accounts and, and so on and so forth. They should really be demanding attention to this issue. Yeah, this almost goes back to Malcolm's point of kind of a counter-radicalization psychological uh, impact. No, no service provider worth a darn wants to be labeled as uh, some kind of uh, enabler of terrorism. So something to watch. You know, one of the things with, you know, having social pariah status by these web providers who, who allow some of these things to stay up, even though they're, they're free speech, you know, that, like you say, free speech does not apply to these internet, you know, these private providers. YouTube is a good example of that. There is an enormous amount of, of, of information there and videos and web talk that in any other group in the world outside the continental United States would have been targeted by U.S. Mm. intelligence, right, as, as, you know, terrorist ideology and radicalization training tools. I mean, you know, I, we did a lot of counter-ISIS uh, material that was being content that was being generated in the United States, shared in the United States, and the providers took that down until there's a public outcry. And I think El Paso was step one of that. These providers have got to see, they may not be actually... You know, they may be criminally liable, but for the most part, no one's putting plans on the Internet. They're just talking about their new world order. But as they're taken down, in fact, as, as from the intelligence perspective, I like the idea that they're all going to Gap. I like the idea that they're going to go on to Discus, you know, or, or, and these are, you know, we, this channelizes their radicalization pipeline to an easily collectible <laughs> you know, space for academics and, and intelligence and law enforcement. Uh, and they need to know that. There's that old saying that we, you know, we, we have uh, in the international counterterrorism world about, you know, the, about being arrested in the United States for conspiring to work with al-Qaeda or ISIS. If you're talking to al-Qaeda or ISIS, you're talking to the FBI. You know, you are not talking to ISIS. And I want these people who are planning this, who think that they're going to relaunch the Fourth Reich and the New World Order here, it's not the Southern Poverty Law Center that's going to be coming for you anymore or the Anti-Defamation League. It's going to be all of us. Well, it's a, this is a great point because uh, even, even since El Paso, there have been reports of up to two dozen arrests since then simply for people in the planning or or even exploration stage and and merely because the FBI and, and two things the FBI opened what they call a threat assessment to take a hard look at at uh, folks who might be doing this and then secondly the public is far more willing to come forward and report concerns and it's it's really resulted in almost a disturbing number of takedowns since El Paso this has been a great discussion of a vital topic one can only hope that our lawmakers um, during their summer break right now are having an engagement in this same kind of discussion. It's been helpful for me, and I hope it's been helpful for our listeners. We close out Talking Feds with a segment we call Five Words or Fewer. And this is where we take a question from a listener previously submitted, and each of us have to answer in five words or fewer. Those of us in the legal and law enforcement professions and intelligence um, often have difficulty doing that uh, because we speak we speak in uh, in much larger uh, spaces. Let's let's give it a shot though. Our question today comes from Penny in Michigan, who writes, "Hello, talking feds." She says, "Will the intelligence agencies refuse to comply with Attorney General Barr's 
new declassification powers. Hmm, there's a lot there. This is uh, the president uh, giving, you know, in the aftermath of the special counsel inquiry, the president uh, telling Barr, hey, I want, to, I want to look at the origins of the special counsel case, and I want every agency to declassify everything and give it to you so you can figure out what happened. But let's kick off our five, five word responses uh, with Barb. No, but resign and tell. Wow. Okay. <laughs> That's, um, we're hoping for a big statement to be made by certain intelligence agencies, uh, maybe optimistic. Mary. Uh, I'm going to be a little bit more positive here. I'm going to say I trust the intelligence community. To do the right thing is what uh, mm. what the inference I'm drawing is. To find a way. Find a way. Malcolm? My five words are, oh, hell yeah, they yeah. will. <laughs> They're not going to play this. All right. And, <laughs> I guess it depends on whether the uh, the head of the intelligence agency is a Trump appointee or not. I'm going to I'm going to give you my five words which is they will only partially comply. I'm hoping that uh they push back um and that they they never give up investigative techniques methods that could endanger lives or singular sources. Look, this has been a wonderful discussion. I want to give my personal thanks, and I know on behalf of Harry, he thanks uh, Barb, Mary, and Malcolm for taking time out to share thoughts with our listeners. I hope our listeners have enjoyed it and take taken away some, some action items, uh, even perhaps for their own elected representatives. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod to find out about future episodes and other Feds-related content. You can also check us out on the web at TalkingFeds.com, where we have full episode transcripts. Submit your questions to questions at talkingfeds.com, whether it's for five words or fewer, or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segment. Thanks for tuning in. And don't worry, as long as you need answers, the feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Jenny Josephson, Dave Moldovan, Anthony Lemos and Rebecca Lopatin. David Lieberman is our contributing writer. Production assistance by Sarah Philippoum. Special thanks to Bradley Whitford. And thanks to the incredible Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Frank Figluzzi. <laughs>